The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Judd Howard loves what he does. Every day is a new adventure when growing hundreds of acres of grass for your home and athletic venues. In this episode, he talks about how you can be successful also, how years of constant research pursues the perfect sod, and also an amazing bald eagle story that happened right on his family's farm. Jutt grew up in the landscape business and is now the VP of Business Operations for NG Turf. Since 2010, he has grown with the company and learned the values of producing high-quality turf grasses. He serves as chairman of the advisory board for AGL, Advancing Georgia's Leaders in Agriculture and Forestry, which is a two-year leadership program. He also serves as a board member of GCIA, Georgia Crop Improvement Association. They are responsible for certification programs involving crop seeds and turf grasses, along with the USDA Organic Certification Program. Judd is a University of Georgia certified turf grass professional and a 2010 University of West Georgia marketing degree graduate. This is episode 117, Growing a Successful Lawn with Minimal Inputs, with Judd Howard on the Garden Question podcast, a remix and encore presentation of episode 26. Judd, what benefits are available when incorporating turf grass into a garden or landscape? Well, I think the most important attribute people look at when they're looking at putting natural grass down is an aesthetic value. And then to me, the physical ability to use that and utilize it from a play environment or an exercise environment, place of relaxation, an aesthetic appeal and ability to get outside and use it, I think it fits a lot of needs. You're talking about providing aesthetic appeal, and one of the things I've always thought of that grass does from a design perspective is it allows your eye to have a place to rest in the garden. You have the other plants planted around the turf area, then the grass is there, and it's a low-plane planting. It gives you a rest area for your eyes, and it also, I believe, enhances your surrounding plantings. I couldn't agree more. I do not have your eye for design. I admire it. I relish I'm not that artsy designer. I, I can see what I want when I look at your webpage and things, but laying it out, I struggle with. Good designers do just what you're talking about. They don't overuse turf from a side farmer trying to sell all the side I can. That's probably not a smart comment, but I think it's a good statement to make that too much grass, I believe, doesn't really treat the whole garden and the whole landscape as well as it could be. Doing it right, good bed lines, I agree with you 100%. Done right, you just get a different feel and sense of the whole environment because that lawn's a focal point. It makes everything else stand out as well at the same time. How about erosion and stormwater runoff? Yes, natural grass has a lot of benefits from an ecological point of view. Number one, just the ability to purify the air and improve the overall air quality. Natural lawns create a good bit of oxygen. 
In addition to producing oxygen, natural grass helps reduce runoff and recharge underground aquifers. It reduces soil erosion by water and wind. If you can leave your lawn clippings, it help benefit the soil and recondition the soil from a natural science point of view it's got a lot of ecological benefits and I think a well-maintained natural lawn has a lot of qualities and improves personal life benefits as well yeah i was fascinated with how it absorbs the pollutants and the air and the water and also temperature regulations too i was amazed at some of the statistics i was seeing on that where it's like 30 degrees less temperature than concrete big conversation with synthetic grass right now you see that a lot in athletic fields out west where water becomes an issue you see a lot of communities who are promoting taking out natural grass and installing synthetic and i think there's some things to consider there talk about heat from an athletic point of view a lot of communities have had concerns after installing synthetic playing surfaces heat would be a major deal on a hot day in the summer we've seen temperatures in the 150 to 160 degree surface temperature on some of these plastic synthetic lawns whereas a much safer environment on natural grass in home lawns where they're discouraging the use of natural grass they're seeing more runoff more erosion and those trying to solve one problem but you're leading to another we're best to educate on smart irrigation and smart use of of resources instead of just going out and creating other problems by ripping out one and installing another problems If we could have the perfect lawn, it would have no weeds, no harmful insects, no diseases, no fertilizer applications needed, no additional water needing, no mowing required, and is green 365 days. And I I guess that's kind of living in a utopian world. I know there's a lot of research and breeding going on in turf grass world. Could you talk about that? If I could come up and invent that grass, I'd be talking to you from the back of my yacht somewhere because we would all (laughs) love to have that. But we do live in a real world with different conditions. But I, I think you make a good point that the research is headed towards that direction. We started seeing breeding of turf grasses around 1950, Tifway 419, which has become the standard was released by Dr. Burton with the University of Georgia. Sort of started the UGA breeding program, which is a world leader. All of the TIF varieties of TIF Tough, TIF Way, TIF Grand that you're familiar with come out of the UGA breeding program out of Tifton, Georgia, hence the TIF there. Over the last 15 or 20 years, there's been a shift with USDA and other people who fund research to solve a lot of those issues that we're facing, whether that be drought and the conservation of water, shade or wear and tear and and the ability for a turf grass to recover a lot of these athletic situations. Definitely research is geared towards helping with a lot of those issues. One of the most interesting things that I've learned in my journey here with NG Turf is being able to be close to some of the turf breeders and watching that process. It's amazing when we are able to bring a new grass to market. It's really a grass that's been in their program and research for 10, maybe 15, and sometimes even 20 years. Those are crosses that they begin with. They take one plant and do a, I don't even want to try to use the words because my you, my research friends and doctors would laugh at me for messing up what they're good at. They cross those varieties and create hundreds of new samples, if you will, and will go out and put three or 400 different crosses out in the field. They'll monitor those in whatever environment they're looking for. If they're looking for a drought-resistant variety, they may put a rain shelter over it or If they're looking for shade, they may grow those under some shade cloths, those things of that nature. They're going from 400 down to maybe 20, and then they watch those 20. Maybe they just take one of those and cross it again with some new 
material that they've developed for other things. Eventually, they will come up with four or five grasses that fit what they're looking for. And a lot of times they will put those in different environments than just where they're testing. A lot of the different universities around the southeast participate in trials. Uh, the NTEP, uh, National Turf Grass Evaluation Program, conducts trials and, and has volunteers from sod farmers to university research areas that will put these grasses in and watch them themselves. So you get hundreds of sets of eyes on them over a 10 or 15 year process growing in unique situations all across the country. These breeders and producers are very cautious that before a new grass goes to market, it's been well tested, well researched, and it's doing something different. We struggle not to just rush a grass out that's the same as something else. For Tiff Tough, for example, out of UGA, a new Bermuda grass that's came out uses about 38% less water than other standard Bermuda grass varieties. You know, that's something UGA was working with USDA on for about 15 years on trying to develop a variety that would conserve natural resources like water. Once they establish that, the sod farmers get involved. Just because they have a grass that looks good, that doesn't mean it's going to be able to be produced harvestable that it will hold together and have tensile strength and be able to make that transition to the end user's environment and overall effective. So it's a long process, very interesting. We love to be involved in helping every way we can. So you've got this new grass, solves a lot of issues for folks. You've got to go through a production process. How does that work? So once a breeder has found a variety of grass that fits the standards, it's something that they're excited about, they think is marketable, that's going to make a difference in the industry, they will go through a licensing agency who will help them find turf producers to put those in. Sometimes in trials or when it's finally released, they will control that. And most all of your new grasses that come out are certified varieties. That means they're protected, much like you would think of a dog in a UKC or a AKC registration. You're protecting genetic purity. So if a new side farm wants to start growing Tiff Tough, for that matter, they would get material that has been replicated from the original breeder material in what we call foundation plots. Some of those licensing agencies have foundation material that the sod producers can get and create a registered field. They grow that in from sprigs, and maybe they plant a little small five-acre registered field that's two generations from the breeder's material. If that material is inspected, the field's inspected prior to them planting that, and it takes most varieties just on average probably a half to a full growing season to get that grown in enough that they can then dig that sprig material and plant production fields, what would then be classed as certified. No certified fields are grown in, inspected during that process, and then inspected at least three times annually. Here in Georgia, we have the Georgia Crop Improvement Association that has inspectors go out to turf fields three times a year looking at those certified varieties to ensure that they're weed-free and free of all other off-types that you would not have a different Bermuda grass in this strain that you're trying to grow or a zoysia grass contaminated in a Bermuda grass field. That's sort of some quality control there that most of the breeders now mandate their grasses be grown under a state-certified agency. 
once we have a production field, it ranges from four to five months growing time to sometime two years of growing seasons before we can get a grass. And much the same that you see in Bermuda and zoysias, uh, people often ask, why is zoysia so much more expensive? And one, I believe it's a better grass. It's better quality. It holds together better, handles shade, a lot of those things. But the true cost is to the producer. It's a little slower growing, and it takes the producer months more to produce a zoysia grass than they do Bermuda. So that's more mowing, more fertilization, more irrigation. We control all those things to produce that product. So that's why you generally will see a price difference between faster growing grasses and, and slower ones. I always try to explain to folks is it's just time. It takes more time to produce that plant or that sod or whatever. And that's why that plant costs more. Time's money as the old adage goes. That's right. And some of the cost differences between grasses is because some of those proceeds are going back to the breeder to help fund more research and produce more varieties. They have a patented product that they're getting a royalty on that has an impact on pricing as well. What are you seeing coming down in the future of grasses that are being developed today? I think two key things that you will see society in general and in the lawn landscape industry are concerned about water usage. I think you will continue to see a focus on grasses that can be aesthetically pleasing with fewer requirements for irrigation. The second biggest thing I think researchers and breeders will continue to focus on is finding varieties that can handle the environment with the least amount of herbicides required as possible. What we control, I think, is very important to the end user. They don't want to look at a lawn they've invested in and, and see off types or see weeds. And so I think finding grasses that are more tolerable of wide-spectrum herbicides, I think that will be beneficial. I think something that will be cost-saving to the producer, cost savings to the end consumer, and a more marketable product. Third, I would probably say shade is a major consideration here in the transition zone. In Georgia, we are right in the area to where bluegrass and fescue make up the northern part of the United States and what people are familiar with. And then down in the southern part of the United States, we're familiar with Bermudas and zoysia grasses, which are warm season varieties. They go dormant sometime around November and green back up in April. The more and more friends we have that move down from the north and join us here are not used to that, and they don't understand why their lawn turns brown in the wintertime. I think the market is seeing a trend to where we're looking for more grasses that will stay green year-round struggle there is we're in a transition zone and generally speaking those cool season grasses like fescue and bluegrass don't handle the heat very well what do you wish people would do differently when designing building or growing a turf grass lawn really trying to put the wrong grass in the wrong environment sometimes because someone's focused on a budget things of that nature you know i'd go back to taking a full sun unirrigated property or lawn and trying to put um, fescue seed out on that in march or april you're going to get some erosion control you're going to get some temporary lawn but long term that's just not a viable solution no different than it would be in putting fescue as a sod product out there in a full sun unirrigated environment it's just not going to withstand it. So I think a lot of times putting the wrong grass in the wrong environment, something that should be full sun and just too much shade, too much shade, too much shade. There's other plants, there's other parts of the landscape that can be designed to enhance those areas, put the grass in a situation to where it can survive. I think ultimately the industry as a whole is better off if everybody's successful. And I don't want to sell more sod, even though it's a great sell. If it's not going to make the end user successful, I don't think we're doing anybody any good. 
I'd like to see that done different, just a little more thought involved into what's going to be the long-term success of this project. What is important to know when selecting a type of grass for your lawn? I think every lawn is different. Our number one thing we tell our customers who call in that are interested in putting in a new sodded lawn is if you have the time to do the project as well as you can, sometimes time is a constraint. Number one, do a soil test. Go out take some samples, top two to three inches of your lawn, one to two inches really where that root system will be growing, getting its nutrients. Get a couple samples, go by your extension office. They can help send those off to a lab, come back with a really good recommendation of some amendments you need to make to your soil, whether that be lime, phosphorus, potassium. And then once the grass is established and growing, you can help with nitrogen on that plant as well. Secondly, I think you need to consider how much shade do you have? How much sunlight is the yard getting? We could have a whole podcast on shade relative to turf grass. It's a lot of topics, a lot of debate. A safe thing we like to say is any grass that you're looking to put in your yard, you need about four hours of full direct sunlight to start to be successful with some of the shade tolerant varieties, those being fescue and some zoysia grasses, and then moving into grasses who need and desire more sunlight, less amount of shade tolerant would be your Bermuda grasses and centipedes. What does the environment look like? How much uh, sunlight is it getting? Is there anything you can do to improve that? Can you trim some trees back, get some more light through that canopy? I think is important. That'll help you narrow down, do you need a shade tolerant variety or are you getting full sun? Next, I would consider what's the environment going to be used for? Is it just an aesthetic purpose and just going to be in the front yard and no one's going to be out in it? Or do the kids play in it? Is there going to be a slip and slide on it once a year? Are dogs playing on it every day? I think a lot of those things are important factors in looking at what grasses and how they recover from stress, how they hold up to traffic, start to take you down that path. One of the biggest considerations is cool season versus warm season. We have a lot of people moving down from the north who expect their lawn to stay green year-round and wonder why does everything go brown about October. Sometime around Halloween, we start to get a first frost, and, and your warm season grasses such as Bermuda, centipede, and zoysias will go into a dormancy state until soil temperatures begin to warm back up sometime in mid-March and April. You know, if you desire that year-round green, there's some considerations there. If you like the Bermudas and Zoysias, you're going to withstand that dormancy period for a while. Those are three key things to consider is do the proper soil test. Where is the acceptable part of my yard that I can establish alone? How much sunlight am I getting? And what am I going to be using this for? Do I want it to be green year round? The key important factors, I think, to begin that conversation of selecting the right turf. In my mind, warm season grasses are basically green 200 days out of the year, and the cool season grasses are green 300 days out of the year. They want to go dormant toward the end of the summer, and then everybody's wondering why their cool season grass is failing in that time period. What are the turf grasses we have to choose for for our lawns here in in Georgia? Great question. I think once you've established what you want to use your yard for and how much sunlight you can get, you can start looking at, do I want a cool season grass? Do I want a warm season grass? We've discussed the differences there. One key thing is we say grass that stays green year-round. We're in a transition zone here around the North Georgia-Atlanta market. When we put those cool season grasses, yes, they don't go dormant in the winter. However, they really don't handle the heat very well. We see a period during the summertime where your cool season grasses are going to a state of dormancy, where they're just trying to protect themselves. 
Warm season grasses, zoysias, Bermuda grasses, probably the most popular choices in the southeast. My preference is zoysias. They grow a little slower. They require less mowing, less fertilization. They're a little more denser and can handle some shade. Well, I think when the consumer decides that they're definitely going to do a project, deciding what the variety is, is a very important question. Here at the farm, we'll let customers go down the field and actually see them. The shade considerations, are you going to irrigate your lawn? Maintaining a cool season lawn in the Atlanta market with no irrigation, I would not suggest that. It's going to be very difficult. If you have an irrigation system, if you have some shade, I think you can look at fescues, cool season grasses. If you get into warm season grasses, Bermuda, very popular choice. I mentioned Tiff Tough earlier. That is a new variety that will maintain green color in periods of stress and drought. Use 38% less water than your standard Bermuda varieties. Tiffway 419 has been around for close to 75 years because it's just a great grass. It's hardy. It's hard to kill it. You can't damage it. It'll recover from traffic very quickly. I think Bermuda grasses definitely have a place. Zoysias are my favorite from an aesthetic point of view, a little wider, coarser blade. I'm a fan. You can get into a myriad there. When you get into zoysias, there's finer, thin blade grasses like Zeon zoysia, an emerald. And then you get into some of the coarser grasses like Meyer and El Toro. The ability to withstand some shade or full sunlight, a little denser that will help naturally choke out weeds, uh, less need for nitrogen applications throughout the year. I tell my customers, yes, they're a little more expensive. It takes a little more time to grow it, time's money. So that's why you'll see a price difference there. But ultimately, it's an investment. It will pay for itself in the long run when you look at fertilizer costs, treatment costs to apply herbicides for weed control, irrigation costs for having to irrigate Bermuda a little more, all of those things, mowing costs. Sod in general is an investment. Put those areas in, they're valuable. What about centipedes in St. Augustine? We don't grow St. Augustine. We do grow centipede. We produce it down at our middle Georgia farms. We're in this transition zone, and and I would say St. Augustine and, and centipede are just like a cool season grass. As they come north, starting to get to cooler temperatures, they can see some stress during the winter. Tiff Blair centipede is the centipede that we grow. Tiff comes from the name of Tifton in Tifton, Georgia, where University of Georgia's turf research and breeding program is based out of. And then the Blair in Tiff Blair is Blairsville, Georgia, because when they were developing this centipede, they did majority of their testing up in North Georgia at a little above 2,000 foot elevation, very much cooler climate, trying to find a variety that would handle those cooler conditions. So Tiff Blair met the test there, and that's side that we grow and sell. St. Augustine, I believe if you can get it installed early in the spring, let it get a good root system established prior to the winter. As long as you don't see these consecutive days in the single digits, low teen temperatures, you're pretty safe with these varieties. I've always heard that St. Augustine pretty much was grown in South Georgia's what's called the fall line between Columbus, Macon, and Augusta. Is that still pretty much the case or do you see it creep on up north of that? From a production standpoint, you're true, and I wouldn't be fair to say that's probably because the grass can't handle being produced north of there. From a sod production standpoint and traditional agriculture in general in the state is below that fall line because that's about as far as you can come north and still put a hole in the ground and get adequate water for irrigation from a production standpoint. Here we have some farms that are around the metro Atlanta area. We're in river bottoms and using surface water irrigation. 
irrigation. Majority of the sod production is in South Georgia, primarily due to irrigation, but I think it's fair to say that St. Augustine in the transition zone, grown during the winter with exposed root systems during the winter, would pose a production issue. It's just right on the edge here of where it will start to really have stress issues in the winter. Would that be true also to the end user in the lawn? Yes, I think so. I don't think it's a barrier. I would not ever say that you don't need to put St. Augustine in north of Macon. I don't think that's a fair statement. I've seen successful lawns that are St. Augustine and Centipede, but is there risk? Absolutely. If you can get that sod established in the spring, let it get some good root system in before the winter, I think you have a better chance. But even a five or 10-year-old established Centipede lawn, St. Augustine, that gets hit with an extremely cold winter, you can see some winter kill in a lot of those lawns. Let's move on and talk about coosleys and grasses. I and mean, we've got fescues and bluegrass. Could you talk about those? Fescue, bluegrass, predominant turf grass varieties that are grown in the northern climates. Fescue's been a popular variety that's grown in the transition zone here in Georgia. It struggles during the summer. You can see it going to appear to dormancy. One of the downsides to fescue is that it does not have rhizomes and stolons similar to your warm season varieties, so it does not spread and recover from injury. If you go out in your Bermuda lawn and your dog uses the restroom and you have a burn spot, that grass can fill in and recover that area with time. Whereas fescue, if it gets damaged, the only way it's going to recover and fill in that bare area is with seed. So cool season grasses, biggest attribute, they stay green year round for the most part. Definitely green and thrive during the fall and spring and still look good in the winter. The downside to that is some heat tolerance during the summer and just its inability to recover. What about bluegrasses? Bluegrasses are generally a variety that we have not seen much in the southeast. They are not quite as heat tolerant as fescue. Your Kentucky bluegrasses primarily is what I'm talking about. Recently, I should not say recently, it's really been a project going on for about a little over 10 years. Dr. Ambika Chandra with Texas A&M began crossing some Kentucky bluegrass varieties with some Texas bluegrass varieties, trying to find a bluegrass that will withstand the the heat temperatures in this transition zone. Why is that important? Well, you know, we have fescue. Why are we trying to find something a little better? The good thing about these Texas bluegrass crosses is they do have rhizomes, which is a horizontal root system under the ground. So they will recover and spread and fill in from damaged areas. From a production standpoint, for the sod farmer, that's great because they can cover a field and regrow that field in a timely manner. Once Dr. Chandra had reached 64 crosses she had made, she got those out to several of her counterparts at universities across the southeast that do turf grass research. Those included Mississippi State, University of Florida, University of Georgia, Tennessee, NC State, and Auburn University, and then Texas A&M where she does her work. One consistently rose to the top, and that is now being released. It's going to be called Southern Blue. A Texas bluegrass cross. We're excited that uh, NG Turf is now carrying that. It is for sale. We've had some home loans put in as test loans and very excited about what we're seeing with it because it is tremendous ability to handle the heat and stress of what you would traditionally see in fescue and its ability to recover and not need to be overseeded. We're really excited about Southern Blue. There's also another one that is Sunbelt Blue that is still in the process of being released and going through that 
that legal phase. We're excited to have it in production and ready to be released. In addition to its heat and drought tolerance, the disease resistance is phenomenal. We've seen little to no disease in this bluegrass, and I think that's a key thing when looking at cool season grasses is the ability to handle shades, a great attribute, the ability to stay green year-round, but in the, here in the transition zone, how well does it handle the heat, how much irrigation does it need, and how susceptible to disease is it. So we're excited about these two new varieties that hopefully fill that void. That's exciting because I think there is a huge void there. That's interesting to know that you've got this bluegrass, which I traditionally think of as, as a northern grass. That Anytime anybody's mentioned bluegrass to me, it's like, well, no, that doesn't work here. And now we've got one that will. What do you do as far as maintenance on that type grass? How does that maintenance change? Right now, what we've seen in our trials and some of the home loans that we've put out, very similar to fescue mowing heights, very similar two inches to two and a half, three inches. Summertime, you may bring that up about 25% more just to help in the summertime. Overall, what you would traditionally see in a fescue lawn is fertilization in the spring and the fall, pre-emergence, maybe two, three pre-emergent applications a year. But it is a cool season grass, so your irrigation is going to be an issue there. You're definitely going to need to do some supplemental irrigation. With these Texas bluegrasses, I don't believe you'll see that as much as with fescue. We currently have studies underway with the University of Georgia's Dr. Patrick McCullough, who is a weed turf grass specialist. He is doing herbicide studies and getting us some rates and and what herbicides are safe to use and at what rates we would recommend. It's been very interesting, very enjoyable to sort of go from the ground up with this grass from very early on when I started here at North Georgia Turf. This thing was just getting going and now I've got to watch it through the release phase and there's no data on this on what chemicals to use. So being able to work with Dr. McCullough on what works, what rates can we recommend to homeowners. I'm excited to follow through on that and as we have more data we'll share with the end users. I think you'll see the main and it's very, very similar to fescue. That's a game changer, I think. If somebody has a turf that they can't identify, like a zorgia, there's you know, a lot of different varieties of zorgia. Is there an easy way to do that other than just observation if observation's not working? a very difficult thing to solve. We've get a lot of people who bring grasses in here to the farm. We can get close one thing that when you're looking at a sample is how much moisture does it have into it because a wide blade zoysia that's been dug and starts to dry out the leaves get really fine and almost appear to be a fine bladed zoysia maintaining moisture in them I would recommend digging up a good size sample when I say good size, 12 by 12 piece, something that got enough root system on it to maintain the moisture. Put that in a Ziploc bag with a little water until you can get it to somewhere that can help identify it. Even in that situation, to be 100% is almost impossible. Tell the difference between Azores and Bermuda, pretty easy. You get down to, to saying whether it's TIFF Tough or whether it's TIFF Way 419, very, very hard to do. How would the scientists determine that? DNA? That is really the only way to be 100%. I have seen issues to where DNA tests had to get involved. The University of Georgia can do that in their turf grass research labs. I don't know the exact cost, but it's not cheap. It may be close to $500 to get a genetic test on grass. That's considering they have something to compare it to. What are the key things to know when preparing the soil for sod and seed installation? 
The number one thing you can do is if you have the time in your project is to get a soil test, and that will give you some good advice on any amendments you need to make to the soil. And then tilling that soil and getting a good root bed. When you install seed or you install sod, the goal is to get those roots deep so they can collect their own water in the water table without relying so much on your supplemental irrigation. Tilling that soil a good four to six inches, depending on what you had there prior, you may want to make a herbicide application of Roundup or something of that nature to control any off types. Sometimes one, maybe two would need to be needed depending on what you had there before. Till that up, till the soil a good four to six inches and break that smooth. Drainage is key in soil preparation for sod and grading. A lot of times natural grass definitely needs water, but many times we'll have situations where we have standing water and natural grass does not like that. You need a good, well-drained soil with some well-established roots. So I think getting a good soil bed is key in preparing the sod for an installation. How do you install or place the sod on prepared soil? Once you have it tilled up, you can lightly rake that. And if your soil test suggests any amendments, I would just put them on the top of the dirt right prior to installation and lightly rake those in. Get it graded to your liking, and then you can just start installing. In North Georgia turf, we typically harvest sod in 16-inch by 24-inch rectangular pieces. I think that's the industry standard. You see some mini rolls now, and we do harvest large commercial rolls. They take a mechanical device, whether that be a skid steer or a tractor, to install them. But on commercial projects and golf courses, uh, you see a lot of what we call mega rolls. But traditionally speaking, rectangular slabs, I encourage people to start in a straight line. It doesn't have to follow the flower bed, but just start in a straight line at your longest point and laying there in sort of a brick pattern so you're overlapping your seams and, and don't have any area there. Cutting in, you're going to need a, some type of blade or knife, machete. Cut your edges in. Craig, your website and some of the projects I've seen you do speak for yourself in the lines that you design in your lawns. And I think that's one of the key things of aesthetically pleasing garden or landscape is to have those really nice lines in your side. And you don't have to try to lay on that line. You can lay over it and come back and paint. What do you do in your landscape, Craig? Do you paint those lines and then cut that back out? Or how do you typically lay around those? Thanks, Judd. The process for cutting sod into a bed line is an art. First, you'll want to determine how much space is needed for shrubs, trees, and other plant materials outside the sodded area. Be sure to think in terms of mature size for the plants. For example, if you have a plant that matures at two feet wide from the center of the plant, then place the bed line at a minimum of three feet from the center of the plant. When marking straight or curvilinear lines, you'll want to think like a lawnmower. The goal is to be able to make sweeping cuts with the mower around the bed lines without having to back up or cut with a string trimmer. I like curvilinear bed lines that are wide, lazy, and flowing. They are pleasing to the eye and are a visual force in the landscape. The magic is the contrast between the brown mulch and the green sod. This forms a strong line in the landscape. Avoid short, quick, quirky little curved lines. They are hard to maintain and visually irritating. You will never regret pulling a string when making and marking straight bed lines. Just pull the string between two stakes, put your paint markings down beside it, and you've got a perfect straight bed line. We use white marking paint because it provides a better contrast and is not easily confused with utility marking paint. 
lay out the bed lines using the white marker paint on the soil before laying the sod. That will give you a visual reference on how the sodded area will look for the finished lawn. It is easier to adjust the painted lines at this point than later. Lay the sod past the white painted line. Paint a second line on top of the sod, which becomes the cut line. We use a power edger for most of our cuttings along that painted line. Hatchets and machetes work fine too. They're just a slower process. Pull the mulch back up to the sod cut line and you're finished. A wonderful, flowing, easy to look at, and pleasing sod and mulch bed line. Great idea. Rolling, if you've installed it, not necessarily the same day. Installation, top of the list, most important thing to consider, especially in the summers, irrigation. That sod has gone through a stressful process when it is ripped out of the ground, if you if you will, with a, a sod harvester placed on a pallet. We try to do that as late in the afternoon as possible to give the time frame between where you can get that installed on the ground quickly without a, a big lapse of time there. It's gone through a stressful situation, getting it down on the ground and getting it watered just as fast as you can. We deliver a lot of grass to golf courses, and we've been a part of some professional sports fields projects before. And I remember one time at Turner Field, we were delivering some grass there, and those guys had people installing it, and they were literally watering it as soon as it hits the ground. Someone was coming right behind it with water. And I think that's a key part of helping it get established. You're right on that. I've never have literally watered it as soon as it is laid, but we tend to follow back up, especially on those hot days, irrigating on sections rather than waiting till the end of the whole installation. We see those lawns do a whole lot better when we do that. What do you need to know about seed installation? Establishing from seed is a great question. We see a lot of calls that we get from customers saying, can I just establish grass from seed? One of the key things, even more important with seeding, is consistent irrigation from the time you've planted that, put that seed in the ground, lightly rake it in or put it on top. Consistent irrigation, you have to keep that seed bed moist. If it ever dries out, good chance you're going to have some loss there. A lot of our varieties that we grow here on the farm are hybrid crosses, which means they produce a seed head, but it's generally sterile. So our grasses have to be propagated vegetatively, meaning we're digging sprigs or take a piece of sod and shred it and shred it and even smaller pieces and shred it as fine as you could. That little bitty single root, a runner with three or four stems of grass on it with some root system, what we're looking for. We will put that in the ground and again, keep it moist just like you would a seed bed and that grass will spread. Your seeded varieties, you need to make sure your seeding rate's high enough that you account for the fact that it's not going to spread and fill in. A very delicate process, but nonetheless, it's one that can be done here. I often argue with my dad. He's a minister, so I grew up a preacher's kid. And every spring, here we would go to Home Depot. We'd buy a bunch of fescue seed and hay and mulch, and we'd come see the yard in Carrollton, Georgia, just west of Atlanta every spring, and he'd put the sprinklers to it. It looked great, fabulous. March, April, May, June, eh. July, yeah, August is dead. Come September when fescue should be thriving, we wouldn't have anything but weeds. Establishing from seed in the spring, I would caution, is very, very difficult. You know, overseeding in the spring, I think, is fine. Earlier the possible, get a lot of irrigation, get that root system deep. 
the fall is really the time that you should be trying to establish a new lawn from seed, be that a cool season grass like fescue. Um, Bermuda grasses and centipede seed, obviously, I would be doing those in the spring for the same reason. Get those root systems established before their period of stress. What are some of the must-need-to-know rules for maintenance on turf? When I talk about maintenance of my customers, I I like to start by saying when you're going to start a new lawn, the expectation of what the grass should be and could be at the end result is really about a 12-month process. You're not going to get that golf course manicured look day after installation or even three or four months after installation. Generally speaking, you need to give that side about 12 months to get established before you really come in heavy with any pre-emergence, post-emergence, things of that nature that's going to give you that final really, really good look. You can immediately start off with mowing critically important to mow frequently. Never mow off a third or more of the blade when mowing. Keeping your blade sharp, I think, is important for the leaf tissue to get a good clean cut. It recovers from that quickly. Mowing heights is a popular question. We have some Bermuda grasses we can take down to a half inch. If you have that real tight mower and you can do that, you can take some of these varieties down to a half inch. But we really recommend for the general home lawn purpose that Bermuda grass be maintained somewhere between an inch and a half to two inches. Zoysia grasses in the same arena there. Fescue's a little taller in that two inch to three inch range. One of the biggest mistakes I see homeowners make, including myself, is I jump out in the spring and I fertilize my lawn. I get everything looking great. It's spring. I work on a sub farm and I get busy and I get behind on mowing my grass. I've got a kid's birthday party and I want it to look great and I go mow it down to an inch and a half or I don't readjust my mower and I scalp that grass. I basically cut 80 or 90 percent of that leaf tissue off, sometimes 100 percent of it, and you cut it down to the stems, especially in Bermuda grass. You'll see this. That's a critical area that if you miss a mowing, raise your mower back up, take that slowly over two or three mowings back down to the height you want to get it to. Uh, Don't try to do that all at once. Fertility requirements. I think it's generally an overused product on natural grass lawns from a homeowner aspect. I think you can start fertilizing sometime around the 1st of May. Uh, People will do it a little sooner, but you take some risk there here around the northern Georgia, Atlanta area. Generally, last frost is no later than April 15th, but we saw some later than that this year. If you rush out and you put fertilizer to it, it starts producing using stored energy. If you get that frost and it sets that back as to start over, it may not have the energy reserves to do that. One thing that you can do in the fall to help store those carbohydrates that it that the turf uses to green up in the spring is a good potassium application. Fertilizers are three numbers. A 10-10-10 is 10% nitrogen, 10% phosphorus, 10% potassium. Look for something in the fall with very little to no nitrogen. A little phosphorus is okay. High-end number. A good potassium application in the fall can help grasses produce that carbohydrates they need to go into dormancy and have those stored energy to come out in the spring and then really wait till about May so you're good and no threat of any more frost and you can start to make that nitrogen application a good blended rate fertilizer unless you have some 
issues, then you can go into a more higher rate nitrogen to push that grass along. One, two, maybe three applications on Bermuda grass during the summer. I like to see one application of nitrogen fertilizer on zoysia grasses on an established home lawn. Obviously, we do a lot more than that here in the farm because we're trying to grow it and produce it, but really trying to stick to around one or two applications on zoysia and cut that off. No nitrogen after July 4th. So it's a simple date to remember, July 4th, no more nitrogen on your zoysia lawn because it increases the risk of disease in the fall and having that nitrogen there as a nutrient source for that disease. If it was to become active, you've got a, an explosion with that nitrogen there as a nutrient source for that disease. What about scalping the lawn? I see that done sometimes in March or early April. Is that really a good idea? And definitely not that time of year. I would not recommend that. A general rule of thumb, what the research has shown is bring the grass out of dormancy at the height that it went into dormancy or vice versa, take it into dormancy at the height you would like it to come out. That's maybe a better piece of advice because yes, you do have some risk. I see a lot of times where people, uh, myself included, I let my my Bermuda grass get away from me. I don't want to scalp it. Now I've got it three inches tall over the winter. It sort of mats down with a lot of rain. And as I start to see green up, I've got that layer of old material there and it can shade that new growth out and really slow down the green up process. If it's a heavy canopy that is not allowing green up, I think you can take that off in the spring. I don't like the term scalping. I think taking that material off, whether it be with a rake or a mower, and removing it enough to open that canopy up, you don't have to come in and cut it down to half an inch. I think you open up the potential there to harming those stems and parts of the grass that are trying to put off that new growth. I would not suggest mowing it too low. If you want it that low, then I would slowly take it down in the fall to get it there when it goes into dormancy so it comes out that stage. Weeding always seems to be a big issue in turf, and I I found that probably your best weed control is a strong turf, but what about, what what are your thoughts on that? I agree 100%, especially with your zoysia grasses, centipede called the lazy man's grass. It's very dense, chokes out weeds very good. You'll see that a lot with zoysias and a healthy Bermuda lawn. Does not need a whole lot of weed control. Here at the farm we have pre-emergence on the grass so when it's harvested and shipped to you it's going to have a span that pre-emergence is going to have some residual effect Uh, it may wear off in a week it could last several weeks but eventually i think you're going to see some weeds that you want to deal with i advise during that establishment phase that first season that you're growing that grass in that you let the grass root in completely and may do some spot treating for weeds really no pre-emergent application until that grass is good and established. If you put it in the spring or summer, just deal with those weeds that season. Put an application for pre-emergent out in the fall and then again fall and spring, and that will help with those. Why do you not want to put any herbicide in for the first year on your new installed grass? That grass is trying to get established. It's using energy to root in, and the deeper those roots go, the faster you can cut that irrigation off and save some money, save some resources, be a better manager of it. I believe herbicides in general, if they're labeled, they're safe to use. There's a lot of products that will handle the weeds that you have, but they all stress the grass. 
stress to some level. You may not see a discoloration. Some of them you'll see a lot of stress and a lot of discoloration, and they have to expend energy to recover from that. When you're trying to do that in a time when it's trying to establish itself already, I'd rather look at that weed or pull that weed or do a spot application on it than trying to set that grass back. Once it's good and rooted in, I think you're obviously safe. Some of your pre-emergence contain root pruners, and it can slow down the rooting and process of your grass if you apply that for it's good and well and established. Prodiamine being one of those, but it's my number one recommended pre-emergent. I think it once established, put prodiamine out in February, put it out again in September, and you get some really good rates of control there for six-month period, and you don't have to do a whole lot, but it's never going to be perfect. You know, I just recommend that you always read the label when dealing with herbicides. After we get past the establishment phase of your turf and we start the watering or irrigation process, do you think that we tend to overwater our lawns in general? I would agree. I think technology is starting to help with that. Not monitoring irrigation systems properly, not keeping them adjusted to where they're spraying on the lawn. Not turning them off if it rained the day before. A lot of the newer systems have rain sensors shutting off or not watering based on natural rainfall event. The other side of that, I think, is what time of day you water. Go out and, and put an oscillating hand sprinkler on a lawn in the middle of July and it's 95 degrees. The amount of water that's lost there to evaporation is tremendous. And I think it's not a good use of that resource and something we should focus on doing early in the morning being the best time. But even in the evenings, if you have to, that you're not losing and wasting that resource. I think it's a key focus that consumers need to be focused on. Why did you decide to pursue the turf grass profession? I grew up and um, my dad was a minister. Me and my brother, he's two years older than me. We grew up preacher's kids and we flipped mattresses and pulled weeds and planted flowers and did anything for every lady in the church to make us some spending money. Uh, sometimes it was because we were looking for money and sometimes it's because my dad was making us go help a widow woman out from church. I guess that started me in my experience outside and experience working in the landscape. It was something that we found a way that we could make some money at. So I enjoyed working for myself and continued my own landscape business from high school into college and did that while I was in college. I spent a little time during college at a retail garden center and we had a hundred acre sod farm that was uh, down the road. So I, that was my first exposure to the sod industry from a production standpoint and, and really wasn't very uh, involved there on the side side. Graduated from college, met my wife. We started dating. Her family is NG Turf. They're in the side business. And I, I joke and say, if I knew it was going to be this much work, I wouldn't have ever started dating her. But it's been good. So I married into the business, but I've got a background in it. I love what I do every day. Some corner office views in Atlanta that I'm sure are nice, but I can walk out of my office into a room full of people that are business minded and very good business discussions. But I can walk out of the back door into a farm with family working on the Chattahoochee River. It's a great place to be. It's a great place to live and love what we do. Tell us a funny garden or landscape or a turf story. I'll just talk about family. We're on the farm. We've got two children. i got an eight-year-old son, Wyatt, and a four-year-old daughter, Nellie. Wyatt goes to school here at Whitesburg Elementary. That's about five miles from the farms. He spent a lot of time here growing up. Even as an infant, he was here across the road at his grandmother's every day. He knows everyone on the farm, so it's a blessing to have him here. And He's here with me a lot, and we ride the farm a lot. And When we get some really, really heavy rains, the creek that we're on, uh, we're on the Chattahoochee River, and the creek and the 
the creek will start to back up into the field and it may flood a 25 acre field but it's no more than 8 10 inches deep at the most i forget this spring sometime we had a rain event that the bottoms we call it had flooded and i was driving down there and Wyatt had his waders that he had got for christmas and wanted to put his waders on and go walk across the field. He takes off. As he's out in the field, I noticed that we had two bald eagles, and we've had some bald eagles hang around the farm here, and they're actually diving into the little shallow water areas because the creek have gotten out of the fish and out of the river, and they're up in the sod fields in this 12 inches of water. And I thought, oh, wow, that's cool. Look, these eagles are uh, getting the fish. They were getting them out and almost like piling them up in a sense. They were putting them in different places in the field and then going back and taking advantage of the situation while they had an opportunity, I guess. Very cool. So I was trying to video and watch it, and I'm driving the truck on down the field, assuming Wyatt is out there in ankle-deep water. I look up, and water's about at his eyeballs. He had walked and fell into what would be a road crossing where a pipe come through the road where we drove from one field to the other, and he couldn't see it. The water was murky. He fell in early spring. It's cold. So I rush over and get him out. He's mad at me because I didn't tell him it was over there, but he's walking in the middle of 40 acres. That's a funny memory I've got here on the farm. Again, a blessing to be able to have those memories with your family here at work every day and your kids being able to be here and grow up on the farm. Something we're proud of. Yeah. Yeah. Life on the farm. Can't beat it. What's your earliest garden memory? I don't know if I'm remembering this from memory or looking at pictures up a lot. My dad always loved to put a big bed of impatience all in front of our house patients and ferns and hanging pots i'll always remember you know the spring putting those in and just when they got massive and just totally dominated the front lawn there i always enjoyed that i've always enjoyed doing my own pots and things around my house now and still putting patients in for that impressive view when they get mature that'd be an early memory i think in your professional career who's been your biggest influencer i think several people I would have to start with my father-in-law, Aaron, that started the business. We spend a lot of time together. We get along great. I've learned a tremendous amount, uh, not only from a production side and learning how to produce grass and that, but just from a business side and business operation. I think there's no doubt he has influenced me more than anyone. My parents as well. My dad's a retired minister. My mom's a retired teacher. I think making me and my brother work growing up, always making us be active and outside, I think has contributed to my enjoyment of work today and what I do and, and being, you know, ultimately successful. And I couldn't not say anything about the other people that are part of our team. I think we all learn from each other, from our salespeople to our guys out mowing the field. I think they've all contributed. What is your most valuable garden mistake? My most valuable garden mistake. Uh, does that mean what have I done that cost me the most money? I may not want to tell that story. <laughs> Well, that would be a valuable garden mistake because you learn from it, I hope. Uh, yeah, I've got lots of learning lessons along, especially here at the farm. Uh, I've made some valuable mistakes. I think ultimately I would come back to the lawn. That's what I focus on. That's what I do. And I, I think improper mowing and improper irrigation are things that I think that I do personally critically wrong, detriment my landscape at home. One might think it looked like a show place for me being in the sod industry, but it's the last thing I want to do when I get home is go mow grass. I do try to maintain it myself. And I think, you know, not free, not mowing frequently enough and not irrigating is one thing that will contribute to the overall landscape in your lawn. Sometimes watering too much and not being wise use of that resource can be just as harmful. I won't tell some of the stories of expensive mistakes I've made around here on the farm. I don't want to tell them myself. 
I would like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have. In my garden, I have little to nothing right now. I've actually just ripped out the majority of my beds and landscapes around my house. I've got about a 12-acre property that our house is on. majority of that in a lawn, maintain it. On my beds, I just bought this house and the stuff had not really been maintained well at that point and gotten too big. I've tried to scale it back over the years, but just decided to start over. Like a lot of projects, I was going to just start with just a few large hollies that needed to come out. And then next thing you know, I don't have a single thing left in front of my house. So I have to start all the way over. Currently, that's what my, my landscape looks like. Yeah. So you've got a clean palette to work with there. What's your future plans for your garden? Well, I'd love to go back in and put things spread out a whole lot more. That's one thing I've learned in the landscape industry from an installation point of view is people want that look right now today. And then two years later, they're trying to keep one shrub from growing to the other. And so I think my goal is to do some very minimal, low-maintenance landscaping. I, I want to try to keep things low, protect the architectural view of the front of my house and, and things of that nature and the view from my front porch looking out. What's your favorite plant? Well, I'd probably get fired if I didn't say grass, right? So, so that's my favorite. All right. Well, yeah. I love maples, trees in general. I love Japanese maples in the landscape. Uh, Lorpetalums. I love a lot of different plants. I love Mondo, low-type growing things that are in walkways and pathways. I love the use of rock in the landscape. I, I don't know that I have a true favorite. I saw it, obviously. I love working with it. Judd, tell us about NG Turf and how people may connect with you. Sure, NG Turf is a sod farm. We've got five locations around the state. We have sales staff in each farm. We started out in 1986, Aaron McCorder. My father-in-law grew up in the dairy business and got into the turf business in the mid-80s. We have grown from about 10 acres to now five locations around the state in Calhoun, Clarksville, Whitesburg, and in Middle Georgia in Fort Valley and Perry. Every one of those locations have a person there in an office, as well as we have our website, ngturf.com, and we have many people answering the phone that you can reach us at 770-832-8608. This has been episode 117, Growing a Successful Lawn with Minimal Inputs with Jet Howard on the Garden Question Podcast, a remix and encore presentation of episode 26. Thank you, Jet. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.